1: For more information, visit HeritageFoodsUSA.com.
0: I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This
1: is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio. I'm here today on the phone again. On the radio again, talking about fish, which is another hangover from the wonderful adventure I was so pleased and delighted to have in Alaska, talking to Maddie O'Leary. Hi, Maddie.
2: Hi, Severin. How are you?
1: Nice to talk to you. Very well, thank you. I'm recovered from my illness.
2: Oh, good. That's great to hear. Alaska. Excuse me, what did you say? Sorry. It's a little quiet.
1: How are things in Alaska?
2: Things in Alaska are pretty good. We're wishing there was a little bit more snow on the ground right now. It's kind of a mix of slush and ice at this time. Um, but we'll keep our fingers crossed that we can actually get some skiing in this year with a forecast for a very warm winter. But I'm optimistic. <laughs> um,
1: I can tell, I couldn't tell immediately when I met you that you were optimistic and oh, well, that thanks. you were onto something. And I wondered if you you could just briefly introduce yourself and how you got to Alaska and what you did once you got there.
2: Wow. Okay. Well, um, I got to Alaska because I was actually teaching English in Thailand for a year, and I was traveling all over Southeast Asia and backpacking in Nepal when I met a father and son that run a fishing business here in Homer, and um, we ended up hiking the Annapurna Circuit together, and so they told me all about Homer and how beautiful it was and how the lifestyle here was so wonderful, and, um, and so that just really stuck with me, and I got to know them quite well and kept in touch, and so when my contract for teaching was over in, um, Thailand, I went back to Dallas where, um, I grew up to be with my family, and uh, I tried to, like, hang out, I hung out there for, like, two months or so, and, uh. Realize it just was not the place for me. For me, and then I um, moved up to Alaska with a one-way ticket in July of 2010, and uh, I came up in the summer and just stayed. And so I'm happy here. It's great. Um, and so what I do is uh, my husband commercial fishes in Bristol Bay. And um, he fishes for sockeye salmon, and then we ship our salmon all over the lower forty-eight. Um, I have a small business called Smart Source Seafood. so we ship it directly to families um, and just individuals. Um, and then we also work with um, CSAs and co-ops um, to get our salmon out on a on a larger scale, which is which is what I really really enjoy doing. So.
1: So can you just reflect a little bit on the shape of the salmon situation for those who are in my audience, which is mostly young farmers, many of whom run CSAs,
0: uh-huh. and also
1: a bunch of young food and farm activists slash engaged in the marketing of food. You know, we're an audience that's interested in understanding the shape of the supply chain and kind of what market norms are now and where they're headed and how we can wiggle and jiggle and make it much better with our lives. So can you mind characterizing kind of how this wild-caught, beautiful Alaskan salmon is currently mostly marketed, how your operation kind of is situated in that context, and Uh maybe a little bit of clues about where it's going or how those of us in lower 48 who are involved in local food and farming could interact with the way that salmon should be be moving, right? That's well, a long question, but you can we can we can take it chunk by chunk.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. I guess I should start by saying um, a huge amount of the the wild salmon caught in Alaska is actually exported um, to be processed because it's a lot cheaper to process in places like China, and so they freeze it whole. And then they ship it over there. They thaw it out. They process it, and then they refreeze it. Send it over here, and sometimes thaw it out and sell it as previously frozen salmon in the supermarket or um, frozen salmon too. Um, so, actually, a whopping 87% of the seafood in the U.S. is imported, which is is pretty shocking. Um, the recent study showed that 80% that the wild salmon fish or the wild fisheries um, in the U.S. could support 80% of the demand um, in the U.S. for salmon, but we're we're not we're not purchasing it like that. Um, instead, we're shipping it away. So, um, so there are a I lot of. In-
1: I want to interject because what we're buying instead, from what I've been reading in really great books, is mm-hmm. we're buying Chilean and mm-hmm. Panamanian
2: and atlantic salmon that's right farmed. right exactly um... there's definitely a lot of people out there buying farmed salmon because it's uh, most of the time it's cheaper than wild salmon um... but you know you have the issues um... in, in farmed salmon like the antibiotics used to control things like sea lice, um... that are a huge problem um... especially like with Chilean salmon um, and so I think that there is there's definitely a growing consciousness towards the importance of buying wild product, um, especially with um, the FDA approving GMO um, salmon last week. It's been, it's just kind of blown up on the internet um, about people saying, you know, talking about the importance of purchasing wild products and, and whatnot. Um, but, all right, so... There are a lot of people up here that are starting to direct market their own fish or trying to, um, and there have been people trying to do that for a long time. It's, it's very, very difficult um, for a lot of the fishermen because you know, they're trying to get markets while they're fishing, and they're fishing around the clock a lot of the time, so really um, the way to do it and be successful is like my husband and I, you know, are, he's the one fishing, I'm the one doing the marketing. And I think that there's there's people starting to figure that out and enter this um, like direct market, um, direct marketing of salmon more. A lot of young people, um, and and so there's you know a lot of, there's uh, the community supported fisheries that are becoming more and more popular. So um, and that product's becoming more and more available.
0: So.
1: So. So, okay, so this is normal in young farmer world and old farmer world and in between young and old farmer world. There's Mm -hmm. lots of of families and extended families where most of the tractor work is performed by one party, most of the paperwork, accounting and office, coordinating, marketing, Mm -hmm. farmer's marketing, schlepping, processing is done by the other party or parties. So we're Mm -hmm. all really familiar with that. Um, What happens on the other end of the salmon that you ship? And how, um, is it just like fancy steaks that are being shipped or fancy grapefruits or fancy oh, nuts, like, like fruit cakes, Or is it more towards co-ops or a big bulk order being shipped that's then divvied up by a buying club? Will you talk a little more about all the way at the other end of the supply chain?
2: Right. So, um, you know, I would say right now about 75% of my orders are people that um, people that that reserve the fish um, before June, and then they end up um, or I end up shipping it to them usually like in August or so, which is really really great for me um, because I have the the capital to um, purchase and process the fish, which it's a huge expense. Um, and then let's see, and then. You know, as far as like the co-ops and CSAs, um, you know, I've been working with quite a few of those, and I, I love doing that because um, I'm able to offer that to people, to the, the salmon to the groups at a lower price, um, and and you know, the shipping is a huge expense. Um, you know, shipping from Alaska, we have to use FedEx priority overnight shipping um, to get it there in good shape. And so if I'm able to ship to CSA's co-ops, bigger groups, it's great because that cost goes down tremendously. Um, it also eliminates me sending tons of styrofoam out there. I have to ship everything in styrofoam boxes. Unfortunately, there uh, we've we've tried tons of alternatives, and um, and there's lots of people doing this in Homer, and everybody's trying to find an alternative, but none of them are... Are kind of are doing the job at this point. So, we're, I mean, I the less styrofoam and whatnot I can put out there, the better. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the big tipping to the big groups, um, it you know is is great um, because it just it makes it so much more accessible to people because they're not paying that that high price for the shipping for low volumes of fish.
1: So, potentially, what could happen is a CSA could distribute, you know, right now we're in Thanksgiving week, uh, everyone mm-hmm. is putting out their emails this week. I, you know, I have to be, be it's a little embarrassing how many farms' email lists I'm on, <laughs> and how many farms this week are, you know, basically having fill your pantry Buy lots of food to give to your relatives.
2: Oh my gosh, you, know, you guys are so lucky. <laughs>
1: and they're selling all their friends' vegetables or their storage vegetables or yeah. freshly made pasta or honey or seafood. And really, like using those CSA distribution lists as the data set and the database for, with which to sell other people's in their local economy their stuff as well. And so, You know, so, for instance, in this holiday period, I'm getting all these emails, but we all, as we continue with holidays and non-holidays alike, could potentially um, reach out to our customers and say, hey, customers, would you like to buy salmon? And then Mm -hmm. everybody say yes, and then they buy it, and then the farmers act as a conduit um, for that and and charge a little percentage for their effort.
2: Um, right, and that's that's how I've worked it out. Have you that before? Sorry, I have, and um, and actually, how that I've had that work with um, farmers in the past is that um, they they've actually preferred to be to be paid or compensated in salmon. And so, like for instance, I was working with this one farmer, and I ended up sending her forty pounds of salmon, and she was like shocked at how much that was actually. Um, but. Um, but you know, I'm. I would do it. I would do it either way. Whatever's com- Whatever makes everybody happy and comfortable. But, but yeah, that's you know, we all we're sharing a a group of folks that are interested in um, delicious, high quality um, food. So the more you know, the more we can support each other, the better. And. Uh, and so I'm, I definitely have stuff available at this time. Um, we had a huge salmon run this year, so we have a lot of um, supply. And, uh, and so I'm definitely looking to move some of that during the holidays and would love to collaborate with anyone um, to make that happen. So you can
1: reach Maddie off-air, and there's all information clickety-clack on the website there. Um, and please do take initiative over the winter months to think this kind of stuff through, dear audience. You know, let's move more than just words around the page with our podcast. Let's move salmon around the planet. But I want to go back to the issue of farm salmon and wild salmon and the issues of environmental stewardship that are common to those of us who steward on the land and those of you who steward on the state and um, just deepen the young agrarian perspective and depth of knowledge about these wild fisheries. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up in terms of GMO GMO seed uh, issues, that the cottonseed oil and soybean oil industries are positioning themselves to create on-land growing massive plantations the uh, ingredients and inputs for these massive fish farms. Can you just give us a little more, um, little more chat about environmental impact that you guys are facing in Alaska around mining and how the wild
2: fishery is protecting the land? Mm, well, there was there's been, let's see, for years now. Um, there's been a push for it's it's a mine called Pebble Mine that's um, threatening the wild salmon stocks in Bristol Bay. Um, most as of recently, that's there's there's been so many so much effort in the past several years. Um, it's it's looking like it's being squashed. We're really really optimistic about it, and so um, so that's really wonderful. Um, as far as the farm stocks, you know we're. There's, there's always the threat that those farm stocks are going to get out and intermingle with the wild stocks and um, and so you know and uh, fortunately in Alaska um, there there's a mandate that all of our fisheries have to be sustainable and you can't actually farm fish here and so um, so we you know we're, we're fortunate for that um, but but certainly like with this with the GMO salmon and whatnot I mean it's a it's People here are definitely concerned about that. Just um, what? What if? What if these these weird Frankenfish, as they're calling them, get into the wild stocks? What is you know the the wild salmon here is one of our greatest resources, and so um, so it'll it's it's there's definitely a lot of people here talking about it, and it'll definitely be interesting um, to see how it all turns out. Um, so. Well, so one of the things that um, is different
1: between Alaskan fishermen and their political power compared to you know young farmers and our political power is first you know one thing that's common I think to both of us is that a lot of influential politically politically influential and culturally influential and economically influential people are eating our food, and so we as producers are in, you know, handshake trust with the, the, the cultural creatives, the 1%, the political class, the media class of America, and have a really interesting communications role to play. Um, what's different about you guys in Alaska, I think, is that the wealth of your fishery and the, the, the vastness of the fishery and the millions of pounds of wild flesh that you're harvesting off of this ecosystem is, you know, an economic base for the state in a way that um, gives you political power to stop things like the pebble mine. And we, as young farmers or or as ecological farmers and ecological stewards in the mainland, we don't have that kind of economic clout to be able to stop mining or fracking or GMOs. And I wondered if you could just reflect a little bit about... How, um, how you guys operate as, as fisher people politically in, in protecting the natural resource that
2: you harvest. Well, you know, something... We're, we're really lucky here because, you know, we have... If you look at the salmon season, the Bristol Bay season is really only about six to eight weeks a year. Um, the other salmon fisheries, you know Prince William Sound, Kodiak, those are more like three months a year. So there are a lot of people that um, that that just work during those times, and they, like you said, because um, you know these resources are so valuable, um, that's all they need to do all year. Um, that's of course not the case for everybody, but it is. The case for a lot of folks, and these people. If you know, if you do get into direct marketing your fish, it does make them more valuable. It does make you um, available to become more, um, you know, sit on the fisheries boards, be more political. And so, I think that that's something that's one of the reasons why the young fishermen here are so active um, because we have the time to be, um, and you know, a lot of these, a lot of people like, like. Young farmers too are coming from backgrounds of, of fishing families, and they have so much knowledge um, to to contribute to these discussions. Um, so I think just you know having having the time to be able to, to devote to that is is huge. Um, so that's uh, well, and
1: until the fish have a direct vote, we're going to have to exert our voices on their behalf.
2: Exactly, because <laughs> you know they wouldn't want to be sharing their beautiful pristine waters with Frankenfish.
1: <laughs> no, sir. They if they could if they could talk, they would be screaming.
2: Exactly. <laughs> oh.
1: yeah. This is um. This is always very. It's always fun to see the parallels and the diff and the differences and to look across the seashore at each other, across the intertidal at one another, and try and learn from the different contexts of the fisher people and the farmer people. And I'm I'm really excited to continue learning about all the connections. Um, You know, I'm right now in Southern California and learning about all of the poison that's being sprayed through the water, the neonicotinoids, that's actually a Mm -hmm. systemic insecticide that's being directly applied to the roots of the trees through the water that goes right into the watershed and is impacting the fish and the fishery offshore. You know, similarly, here they're spraying on the, in the organic systems, they're spraying seaweed emulsion onto the trees to replace the minerals that are, you know, removed by the crop, and so that's harvesting wild seaweed from the ocean in order to replenish the land. So in both cases, it's not a very positive set of inputs going between the systems. Um, I wonder what what the relationships are locally there in Alaska and what happens to the slop from your fish when you're processing fish and filleting fish. Um, what are you guys doing with your fish waste?
2: Um, well, the... As, far as I know from the processors a lot of it's just you know getting dumped back into the bay or or whatnot I I don't actually do the processing myself I'm you know they're they're going it's being run through a, a we use one small processor in Bristol Bay um, and so and then there's many larger ones but as far as I know that's that's what's happening with it um, I guess I don't that's probably not the answer you're looking for, but I, I should probably well, know more about the, that. You're, <laughs> you're inspiring me to ask more questions, and I think that's a wonderful thing.
1: Well, one of, the, one of the, you know, issues that we have on land with these mobile slaughterhouses is getting rid of the awful, you know, the blood and the guts and the toed, toenails and the skulls and the bones of the animals that we harvest or that we butcher, first harvest and then butcher, and, you know, being able to integrate wood chips and, um, you know, ramial chips and, uh, and just straight up wood chips from the environment and then be able to process that, that waste and turn it into compost on farm. And I just, you know, when I, when I saw all those guts and all those fish heads getting sliced up over there in Homer... I just was like, how come nobody's taking this for their garden?
2: Oh yeah, you know, well, right when you started saying that, I thought, well, yeah, we use it in our garden all the time. Um, <laughs> I mean, on a but we're not using, of course, the amount that we're processing. We're not using all that, but yeah, of course, we use we use the fish carcasses and the heads in our compost, and um, actually, there's there's. Um, a bunch of blood meat or bone meal that you can go and get from um, some of the processors. They don't really um, advertise that it's available, but you know, certain people know. Um, but um, but yeah, you're right. There is a lot of opportunity for that, and um, and being as we have so much of it, we should definitely um, spread the word about that a little bit more and figure out how to how to use all those all those rich resources, you know, that are that can be used for sure.
1: Well, I thank you so much for for spending some time talking this stuff through and I really hope that we can move some fish through the young farmer movement and improve our own nutritional profile and the quality of our thinking flesh as well as our working flesh by integrating more free and wild omega-3s into our diet, as well as the diets of all the people that we feed. And I just want to make sure that everyone knows that if you have a little brother or a little sister who needs to toughen up a little bit, you can send them to Alaska because they're looking (laughs) for young fisher people and deckhands. Maddie, where would you send those people? Or where would you send people who are trying to learn more about wild fish and wild fishing?
2: Oh, come up to Homer in May, you know, come up to Homer mid-May, walk on the docks here. I mean, really, if kids are trying to get a job, people will just people will just grab you right up here and talk your ear off and and that's that's how I've learned most everything I know is just talking to all these these local people here that are that have so many great stories, and um, there is so much work available here in the summer and so many young people that are needed in processing and fishing and both commercial and charter fishing, everything. So, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, come to Homer in May, and I would say you're pretty darn sure to get a job in the fishing industry in some way, shape, or form for the summer.
1: Well, there you are, folks. That's pretty clear (laughs) and simple. And uh, if only it were that simple for the Young Farmer's Movement. Um, exactly. Thank you so much, <laughs> and thank you all for joining. Uh, happy, wild, happy Wild Salmon to us
2: all. Oh, thank you so much, Severin. It's been a pleasure. Have a really happy Thanksgiving.
1: Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Keep it real.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website,